you'd open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, while you're turning there, um, spoke with Neil Reagan this morning. He wanted me to express to you, from himself and from his family, his deepest appreciation for all the love and the care that the church has poured out uh, to him and to his family. Uh, with the passing of his wife, Evelyn, um, it is difficult to find words to express uh, what individual feels when you see that kind of outpouring of love and care uh, is just, it can be, and it is really overwhelming. And uh, they are very deeply moved uh, and uh, looking forward to the day when they will see her again in heaven. Uh, but they wanted you to uh, know how much they appreciate um, all that you've done, uh, all the many hands that have helped with that. And uh, so that's a, a huge blessing. And uh, it does not go unnoticed by them or by the Lord. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your kindness and your grace in our life. And Father, we ask that you would help us this morning as we continue our study, that you would help us, Father, to understand the human condition, to understand ourselves, to understand others. We pray that you would help us to understand the extent of sin, to understand the pain that it brings into the lives of so many people. We ask, Father, you would help us to understand the remedy. And that even though we have heard the gospel of Christ many times, Lord, there are still ways in which we can take it for granted. Where we can kind of overlook it. And somehow fail to recognize how the gospel of Christ so deeply penetrates the hearts and lives of men and women and meets their need at the deepest level. And Father, we pray that you help us to come face to face with that today. That, Father, we may grow in our appreciation, again, of your great love and kindness for us. And so, Father, as always, we thank you and ask you to bless our time in your word. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 4, beginning in verse 8. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For who am I toiling for, he asked. Why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. It's a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Another way of kind of putting all this together that he's getting at here when he talks about this man who's alone is remember what the Lord said in the book of Genesis in chapter 2, verse 18, where it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. One of the things that is true is that loneliness hangs over our culture today like a very thick smog. And to kind of let you know what I'm going to be doing over the past the next couple of weeks is going to be this. As, we, as I mentioned before, we're going to be dealing with some, some of the causes of depression and really trying to get a good handle on that. Uh, understanding what it is that the writer of Ecclesiastes is getting at when it comes to how he observes human life. And we need to recognize the, the darkness that is on our culture and the darkness that is in the lives of many individuals so that we can then see 
the, the true need that we have and that people have and that our culture has for the gospel of Christ uh, and, for the, and for Jesus Christ himself. I should say for the gospel and Jesus Christ himself. When I was reading through Francis Schaeffer back in the very beginning, um, meaning back in the uh, 80s, when I, maybe it was the 70s, it doesn't matter. When I was reading through his works, he talked about that there was an incident where he was asked a question that if he only had an hour to spend with a non-believer, only one hour, and his job was to convince this man uh, to believe in Christ, how would he approach it? And he said, and I'm not sure the number, but I'm pretty close to it, that he would spend the first 50 minutes talking to the man about sin and about his sin. And then... He would talk about the gospel in the last 10. And the reason why he said that is because it's important for us to really understand and grasp our true need. That if an individual doesn't understand their need, the gospel is meaningless to that person. They don't see a need for it. Therefore, no need to listen, much less respond. I've had many opportunities to share the gospel with non-believers, especially when I was a chaplain at the jail. And I saw this play out in many different ways, and, and sometimes it would happen in, in, in a sense in a very in an amazingly short period of time. I remember talking to a man once who was, he was incarcerated, and, and after one of our Bible study lessons, he came up to me and just, for whatever reason, wanted me to know that he was not guilty of ever sinning. And in his mind, he wasn't being arrogant, he truly believed that he had some, made some poor judgments in his life. He did not recognize that breaking the law would have been sinful. And so he said, so I know I've done some, I guess I've made some mistakes, but I've never sinned. And I said, well, I said, perhaps either I'm misunderstanding you or you're misunderstanding me. I said, can we talk in private? He said, oh, absolutely. So we, we spoke for a while and, and I talked to him about, you know, gave him some of the, the definitions of sin and so I spent the first um, many minutes t- talking about the law, the law of our land, and, and who has established the government and that type of thing. And as I kind of went into that, explained, you know, with the command of God and, and how then breaking the law would be, would be sinful. And so after explaining all of that to him, I asked him, I said, so, so then if I was to ask you if you've sinned, what would you say? He said, well, now, he, I, he said, I, I guess I would say I've, I've sinned some. I was encouraged. We're making progress. And so we talked some more. And I talked about how we treat people. How he would treat his wife, his parents, his children, his friends, his neighbors, even his enemies. Uh, how he treated those in authority, the police, the judge, all those. We talked about all those things. And how different ways that we treat them would be considered sinful based on what we were doing. And so I asked him again, I said, so if I was to ask you the question, have you sinned, what would you say? He said, well, he said, I'm, well, I've sinned a, a lot more than I thought I have. He said, yeah, I've, I, I've, yeah I've, I've done some sin. So we talked some more. And we're going to talk about attitudes, the things that we think, things that we feel, uh, what we feel about others. And kind of went into all of that and explained in detail again what the Bible says. And uh, did that for, for quite a while. And when I finished, I said, uh, so let me ask you a question. He goes, I know. He said, you're going to ask me if I've sinned. I said, yes, I am. He goes, 
oh, brother, have I sinned. And I said, that's awesome. He goes, what? <laughs> and I said, no, I said, it's awesome that you now grasp that. And uh, he goes, oh, okay. And then we went in, you know, we, we went into a long, lengthy discussion about the gospel, which I think lasted another couple of hours. Uh, and he ended up coming to know the Lord. So when it comes to this thing that I'm going to be talking about today, uh, one of those things that, one of the, one of the great um, things that influence us or move us or that causes depression in individuals, or maybe we should just say great sadness. I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm opposed to the word depression because it's just so overused. And I do think that it is possible an individual can suffer from severe depression, but most individuals are suffering from sadness to one degree or another. I'm not really sure it's depression. But even with that, I, even though I consider depression to be a, a different category, I'm not convinced it should be treated any different, uh, especially the way that it's treated today, and we need to understand that. But we're going to spend some time, and what I, what I really want to do is kind of share with you a lot of things about loneliness and its connection to depression. Because it's important for us to really grasp that whether it is you or others, and it may be both, this is a very real, deep issue that people have. There's an enormous number of people that are suffering. I don't say that in the sense that we then should feel sorry for them. I'm not really big into feeling sorry for anyone for when it comes to most things. But if we are going to have true compassion on individuals... We, we, we need to do more than just feel sorry for them when they're going through a hard time. We do need to seek to try to understand what is happening in their life so we can offer them true and very real help. If you have a neighbor who has no food in their house and you invite them over for dinner, that's a good thing. And it's a compassionate thing. But it doesn't do much for them for tomorrow because they still don't have any food in their house. So if you end up discovering that they have no food in their house and maybe even discovering why they don't have food in their house, then you can move to give them some real help. Maybe what you end up discovering is not only does he need a week's worth of groceries, he needs another job. Or maybe he needs this. Or maybe he needs that. In other words, we need to try to find out what's happening. But if we're not convinced of that, we're not really going to be able to give them what they truly need. And sometimes I think what happens as believers is that we understand the phrase and we believe the phrase that the world needs the gospel. But I'm not sure we're convinced of that. It kind of goes back to a, a movement that started in the 70s, and I won't get into all the history. But what came out of this movement, which we're still having the effects of today, is this idea and people don't always say it this way, but it's this idea that the gospel is good for as far as it goes. Meaning that it's, it's good because it'll get you to heaven. It's good because it'll you know, get your sins forgiven. And many somehow assume that not only that that is all that it deals with, that that is a very small circle of things in a person's life. And so when we come across individuals who may be suffering greatly, and they're non-believers, and let's say that you find out, because this can make people feel very awkward, let's say that it's your neighbor, we'll make this easy, it's your neighbor, and they end up sharing with you that they are severely depressed. 
we immediately feel that is way beyond anything I can do for this person. That is out of my league. That there's, there's nothing I can say to help them. In fact, I need to, as quickly as possible, try and find a way to get to talk to someone else. And so you may even ask, are you seeing a doctor? They say, yes. Whew, good. I need to go in the house and wash some dishes. And the idea is, is that what we need to do, maybe, is to try to talk with them and discover what's going on because the gospel really is the answer. And the world screams against that. And we allow the world to influence us. The world screams that when you say, or if you believe, that someone who's depressed needs the gospel, that that is a simple-minded, ignorant, and maybe even arrogant understanding of human life, need, pain, and religion. And there are many individuals who may not use all those words, but that's, at that moment, how they feel. At that moment, that's what they feel. And many believers feel that, and maybe there's many believers who feel that way as well. And so we need to understand, understand the depth of all of this, the breadth of all of this, and then also then begin to see clearly why it is and how it is the gospel of Christ truly addresses this. So that those who are believers will realize that we do have what we need within us. Not because it's human potential, but it's this relationship that I have with Christ. And that what he has done in history truly has an effect in every facet of my life. It's not just a bunch of words that we say. It's not just some simple story where you can, you know, maybe look at three illustrations. Oh, yeah, that's the crucifixion. And then we move on. But really understand the, the depth and the meaning of all of that. So we begin by asking ourselves this question. What causes our emotions to change? What is it that causes an individual from, becoming, uh, from being very, very happy or maybe at least content and all of a sudden experiencing varying levels of great sadness? The common theory, which didn't used to be the theory, but it's been the common theory now for many decades, and now it's being challenged, is that the reason why that happens is because there's something that happens inside your brain. That different things are happening with the chemicals, all that type of thing, and because of all of that, that's what's creating all of this sadness. It's because of what happens inside your brain. Someone has finally begun to ask the question, and they're getting some traction, well, why aren't we looking at what's happening in their life? How come we're not asking whether that might be causing any of the changes in the brain? With some, it is almost as if the brain is an island, that it is cut off from the rest of the world, cut off really from you almost, and it never interacts with it, which is just absurd to think that for any moment. For example, when we are stressed, our heartbeat goes up. Our saliva becomes flooded with a hormone called cortisol. Doctors have studied what happens to someone who feels lonely, and it turns out that when someone feels lonely, it's like someone who's feeling a great deal of stress. It causes cortisol levels to absolutely soar. In fact, it causes the, the cortisol levels in their body to soar as much as some of the most disturbing things that could ever happen to an individual. Becoming acutely lonely is as stressful as, as stressful as experiencing a physical attack, meaning if you were mugged by three individuals, the stress is the same. When it comes to things like the body's ability to ward off colds, isolated people are three times more likely to catch a cold than people who have a lot of close connections to other people. 
There was a nine-year study following isolated and also, on the other hand, highly connected people to see if whether or not one in one group was more likely to die than someone in the other group. The results? Isolated people are two to three times more likely to die during that period than others. In other words, that nine-year period, you could pick out the ones who were going to die, not because of the way they looked, but which group they were in. Almost everything becomes fatal when you're alone. Cancer, heart disease, respiratory problems, and so on. We're not saying that those things aren't deadly in and of themselves. They are. But what these studies are showing is that for the individuals who are isolated, for individuals who are lonely, those things are that much more deadly. They, they, there's a toll on the body that goes up a great deal. Loneliness is deadly. It has been noted that lonely people are anxious, they have low self-esteem, tend to be pessimistic, and are afraid that other people will dislike them. More and more doctors are believing less and less that loneliness is the result of depression, but that loneliness leads to depression. There was a study that was done in Chicago where a broad cross-section of people between the ages of 50 and 70 were followed. They wanted to discover when, over time, some of the people in the study would develop depression because it was believed that some of them inevitably would. What would come first? Would isolation and loneliness come first, or would the depression come first? Results? In most cases, loneliness preceded all depressive symptoms. One becomes lonely, and that was followed by feelings of despair and profound sadness and depression, and the effect was huge. And again, we all hear the headlines. If you watch anything on the news, whenever there's any kind of a Whenever they're talking about social media and they're talking to researchers, more and more they're talking about that in connection with, even though people appear to be connected, they're not. Loneliness is going up. And, of course, what we've, been, uh, what we've seen a great deal over the past several months is more high-profile cases of suicide. And people are trying to figure out how is that possible if we have all these connections with people and we're able to interact with people and talk to people. In fact, uh, I don't know if you saw this. Remember there's a guy that stole the plane in Seattle the other day? Flew it around for 90 minutes and then crashed it. His intent the whole time, he was going to commit suicide. And he's talking to the uh, air traffic controller the whole time. And uh, it was interesting because I was uh, reading some of the transcripts from, the, uh, from his conversation. And he said something that caught my eye because when you do a study on suicide, uh, often what happens is, is an individual may feel... Like, no one cares about them. And in some cases, they may have very few people who care about them, but normally that's one of the very strong feelings that an individual has. This individual, when he was flying the airplane, stated to the air traffic controller, well, not only do I know a lot of people are going to be surprised by this, because I do have a lot of people who care for me. And that just struck, struck me, because that is not the normal verbiage of an individual who's thinking about committing suicide. This guy was extremely calm in, you know, how he was going to end his life. This was clearly something he had planned to do, and he was going to follow through. Yet in the course of that, there was no real sense of despair, though I'm sure that he was experiencing it at some point in his life, but he stated categorically that he knew that there were several people who cared about him. Now, that doesn't give us any information about how closely connected he was to them and what the relationship was like, but there was an awareness that there were several that cared. And yet, he still ended his life the way that he ended his life. It was just, it was just an, an amazing tidbit that uh, stirs my interest. I would like to hear more about this guy. It's very sad, 
that, that uh, his life ended the way that it ended. Uh, during the study on these individuals that they were following in Chicago, when they were looking at a scale, a scale being zero means you're not lonely at all, and 100 meaning you are completely lonely. Let's say that there were those who were at 50%. If the scale moved just a little to where they felt it went to the 65%, just 15% of these points more of feeling lonely, they were eight times more likely to experience depression. So what they were, what they were noticing is, is that when individuals are lonely or feeling lonely, when they're disconnected from people, it has huge effects on their life. Not minimal. It is very large leaps forward or backward, depending on how you're looking at it, when it comes to how they are affected. And so keep in mind, once again, as we go through this, again, whether you think about yourself or maybe, don't just think about other people that you know that you think might be lonely, because a lot of times it may not be anyone that you think is lonely. Because we're pretty good at, you know, wearing the mask, putting on the front. Maybe a lot of, that's why it's important for us to get to know people and ask questions. We can begin to learn things about them that we never knew. Loneliness, again, is causing a great deal of depression in our society. Some now think that loneliness is an inevitable aspect of human existence. I don't know if I would use the word inevitable. I think it's common. Uh, I think certain things are inevitable because of the curse of sin. But what they're saying is just because you are a human being, it is inevitable, and I don't think that that is true. Death is inevitable, but I don't think that depression is. There was a sleep study done. It's more than just watching people sleep. There was a group called the Huterites. Uh, it's a communal people. They're kind of like the Amish, uh, kind of individuals that live up in the, in the northwestern part of, of North America. Uh, they, they normally live in colonies or communes, about 15 families uh, in each one of them. They raise livestock and they manufacture goods, that kind of, uh, that kind of thing. So they're very deeply connected people. So they did a study on some of these communities as well as a large group of college students, uh, all, you know, a broad cross-section of college students. Um, anywhere in the world, people who describe being, being lonely, they have discovered, will, will experience what they call um, something called micro-awakenings in their sleep. And these are moments that when you're sleeping, they're small moments that you don't recall. You don't remember them when you wake up. But what take, takes place is that while you're sleeping, you continue to wake up. Just these little awakenings throughout the night. Uh, and that's a common thing. And this happens to everyone. Again, remember when I talk about being uh, this loneliness thing, that's not necessarily meaning someone who's just alone. Because people can be alone and not be lonely. Just like an individual can be with a group of people and be very lonely. But those who would describe themselves as being lonely... These individuals experience these micro-awakenings, and so they have disrupted sleep or disturbed sleep throughout the night. In fact, what they discovered is that when it comes to uh, all social animals, they all, they all experience the same thing. And when they're alone, they have these micro-awakenings uh, throughout the night. Uh, they believe that part of it has to do with this idea that they don't really feel 100% safe. And so as a result of that, um, no one has your back, so to speak, and so you keep awakening. It's kind of a defense, a survival mechanism, or what have you. Of course, if you read the secular studies, they'll say, well, they always speak in evolutionary terms, which is just maddening, but uh, nonetheless, um, it is still a, a true observation of human behavior. So basically, your brain then is not going to let you go into full sleep modes. 
And so measuring an individual's micro-awakenings is a very good way to measure if the individual truly feels lonely as an individual. So back to the study. They said the Huterites, they were being compared to a group of college students. It was not during exam week, so we want to make sure that's fair. Um, uh, so as a group, the researchers were astonished because the Huterites had the lowest number of awakenings of any group that they have ever measured anywhere in the world. It was unbelievable uh, that this, there were so few of these micro-awakenings among so few of these individuals. Uh, when it comes to the college students, it was off the charts. It was just, there's just no comparison. So the conclusion is that the loneliness that we are experiencing is primarily a product of how we now live. I've shared with this before. It's, it's four things that are observations that are the result of the fall. So I'm just going to change a word because there's a lot of different words you can use to describe this. It's very helpful in us understanding ourselves and the world around us and what sin has done. When Adam and Eve sinned and when they fell and they brought the curse of sin into the world, man was from that point forward disconnected from God. Man was also disconnected from nature. He was disconnected from himself. And he then also became disconnected from his fellow man. And that is the result of the fall. And we continue to experience that, and we will continue to experience that until we come to know Christ or until the Lord returns. This disconnection from man results in you and I, and also I would say our disconnection from God results in our loneliness. Along with that, they've discovered, and this is great research, I guess, it's even getting worse. Beginning in 1985, they began to, uh, for 10 years, they studied the involvement that people have in various types of community organizations, ranging from PTA to sports to what have you. And participation in all those groups during that 10-year period, 85 to 95, has dropped by 45%. We've stopped banding together. We shut ourselves away in our own homes. We've dropped out of the community, and we're turning inward. The sense that we live in a community or even having friends we can count on has been plummeting. An ongoing study for about 30 years or so asked this question. How many people could you turn to in a crisis? People that you can count on, that you know that no matter what, they will be there. Or even, they, they ask it another way, and that would be, or if something really, really good happens to you, you could share that with that person and that person would genuinely be happy for you because they care about you. And so when they first, as I said, this has been going on for 30 years. So when they first started this, the average American said that they could name categorically, dogmatically, three people they knew that they could count on no matter what. And that's actually a good number. Three people that they were there. By 2004, the most common answer, and this has been going on now for 14 years, the most common answer is zero. Now, it may be difficult for us to understand that if your number's not zero. If there's people that you know you can count on no matter what, it's, it's almost impossible, I think, to imagine how do you live your life if you truly have no one, no one you could turn to. We see them. You see, the, you, know, you see these guys uh, when you come off the Truman, standing at the exit with the sign? We won't get into discussion whether you should give them any money or not. I don't give them any money, but anyway. 
they have their signs. And, and, you, and when I see these individuals, I, I just I can't help myself. I just start wondering, where did they come from? How did they grow up? How did they end up there? Because I'm convinced you've got to burn a lot of bridges. Because it's, the norm is that there's people in our life as we grow up. Not for everybody. I know that's changing. But imagine you've got no one. It's just difficult to even grasp what that must be like. In fact, it's, it's maybe at times be so difficult that if you, if you knew someone at work, and let's say you were talking to them, and let's just say one day they're, it's coming out, they're feeling down, and then you ask them some questions, then it comes out, and they end up making some kind of a statement saying, I just don't have anybody in my life. You might at that moment think, yeah, that's not true. There's no way this guy or this gal has no one in their life. But remember, they can have people they go out drinking with. Doesn't mean they're connected to them. They can have people they see at work every day. Doesn't mean they're connected with them in any way, shape, or form. And those individuals are all around us suffering. And we live in a world that is more and more lonely uh, in, in every way, especially, especially our culture. Westernized cultures. And yes, all the things happening with the social media, I, I, to me, it, it increases it uh, in, in incredible ways. I, I don't think it's the cause of it. I think it was already happening. But it's definitely, in a sense, kind of latched on and is piggybacking it and making it worse at a much faster rate. Some say, well, the reason why maybe for some people it's zero is maybe they, weren't, maybe they think that when you ask the question, you didn't mean family. And we turn inward to our families. Well, the research across the world shows that we've stopped doing stuff with our family. We eat together as families less often. We watch TV together as families less often. We go on vacation together less often. I'm not saying if you take a break and go see, you know, my wife's going to go see her cousin or sisters in Idaho. I'm not going. Cindy doesn't make a habit of taking vacations without me, but she can go. I'm not going. She can go have fun. That's cool. But that's not our norm. Right, the norm is that we do stuff together. And for many of us, that's the norm. And that's what we do. But across our country, this is just happening more and more where it, we just don't do stuff together. Very little of anything. And it's affecting people. In fact, uh, I, I learned this a long time ago, that the uh, number one reason why kids join gangs is because they're looking to belong someplace. Those kids can come from homes. They're not necessarily all broken. Well, most of them are broken homes, not all of them. But they have a mom at home, or they have, maybe they have a grandmother at home, and yet they don't have a sense that they belong. There's no sense that they're wanted, no sense that they're needed. The gang, in weird, strange ways, offers that. Loyalty community, sacrifice, they got your back, you got their back, and the kids join. And, and uh, remember that one of the largest gangs in America is in Chicago. And I, when I first heard this, I was just surprised at the numbers. I never think of gangs like this. 50,000 members. That's a big gang. That's just one gang. It's just insane. Virtually all forms of family togetherness has become less common over the last 25 years. Again, keep in mind there's a huge difference between being alone and being lonely. This comedian, her name is Sarah Silverman. I think I know who she is, but it doesn't really matter. 
She was doing an interview on the radio once, and she was, talk, she was talking about when, you know, she experienced depression when she was a teenager. And she remembers her parents asking her about it, and she was having a hard time exp- finding words to explain what she was experiencing. And then she came up with this explanation. She said, I feel homesick, like I did when I was at summer camp, but I'm at home. It's a good way to talk about it. There are people who are home, and they feel homesick. Today, when we talk about a home, we normally mean just our four walls or maybe our nuclear family. But that has never been how human beings before ever thought about the home. To them, a home has always meant community, a dense web of people all around us. Notice it's not a web of dense people. It is a dense web of people all around us, like a tribe. It's a sense of home. Since our sense of home has shriveled up so far and so fast, it no longer meets our need for a sense of belonging. So we're homesick, even when we're at home. So I want to read to you, I'm going to read to you in a a very determined way from Psalm 31. There's 20, between 21, depending on how you count it, 21 or 22 things that he uses to describe what I've been giving to you. This is all written by David. This is what he says. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. My soul grows weak. My body grows weak with grief. My life is consumed by anguish. And my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction. My bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors. I am a dread to my friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten by them as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. I hear the slander of many. There is terror and fear on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. That's an amazing passage. Sometimes I think, as I mentioned earlier, we don't take depression seriously enough. It's like the topic of death. We don't really want to talk about it. We don't really want to deal with it, investigate it, or understand it. Then on the other hand, we become uber serious about it. We panic over it, over someone who has it, or if we experience it. We take it so seriously that then we become convinced that only certain kinds of experts can help. And the expert needs to help us now. And I need maybe a pill now to make me feel better. And for most of us, for the most part, we don't want anyone who's going to hold us accountable for anything we may or may not be doing that contributes to our current state of mind. It's amazing how our rebelliousness is always there. If anyone is going to try to help us and they're going to in any slight way hold us accountable for how we are living or what we're doing or attitude, they're out. Because they don't understand they don't experience what I'm experiencing. That whatever I'm experiencing becomes an accepted excuse for my refusing, maybe to fulfill my responsibility as a human being, maybe even as a Christian. Psalm 68 says, beginning of verse 4, Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of the widow is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. 
He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. The phrase that jumped out to me in verse 6 was that God settles or God takes the solitary, lonely individual and he places them in a home. Remember, our thinking of home today in our culture is four walls and a roof. But that's not how the world thought about a home for a long time. Remember, a home is what? It's that dense web of people. Remember, not a web of dense people. It's a dense web of people. It's a community, and God places them in a home. That's what God does. Some have said that when you read through the scripture, you don't really come across the word lonely or talk or God talking about that a great deal uh, throughout the scripture. And I believe it's because he doesn't really mention it different, specifically for a lot of different reasons. But one of them is because he's already remedied it. The remedy's already here. The remedy really is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, what did Jesus say? And surely I am with you always to the end of the age, to the very end of the age. He's always with us. The power of loneliness ends when we see that he fully knows us. That's what we need to remember. Jesus died on that cross so he could reconnect us to himself, so he could reconnect us to God, and he then can reconnect us to each other. You see, what we fail to recognize, what the world fails to recognize, is the reason why we experience so much loneliness is because it's not just because of the circumstances I'm in. I am separated from others and from God because of my sin. That is the true obstacle. That is what causes me to be unable to be myself or to be unable to be relaxed or to be unable to be vulnerable to other people, to be unable to reach out and care. It's what causes me to be super selfish and self-centered and only think about myself and what others can give to me. It is my sin that is the problem. And of course, what makes it even worse is I'm walking around all day long feeling rejected because I am disconnected from God. And so Christ then is the remedy for that. When we talk to an individual about believing in Christ, we need to make sure that we're not somehow flippant with it by saying, well, of course, Jesus died for my sin. No one even knows what that means. When you talk about these things and talk about the fact that it is our sin that is causing all of this from happening, it caused all this to happen. It is the curse of sin that is causing all of this to happen. That has to be remedied first. If that isn't remedied, then there's no hope. Everything else is just a band-aid. And what good is a band-aid? Not much. We all, have, maybe, well, maybe we, most of us have experienced this. Your little kid is crying, and they want a band-aid. You know nothing's wrong with them. But when you give them a band-aid anyway, and you put it on, you feel better, and they say yes. But we also know this, that if they get a deep gash, and they come to you, because you know better, you don't just put a Band-Aid on and say, you're better now. No, we want to make sure we get that thing cleaned out. We are going to determine, do they need to go to the doctor? Because maybe they need stitches. Or if you pour, you stitch them up. I've done that. Anyway, the thing is, is that you don't just put a Band-Aid and say, feel better. So what happens is when it comes to the people that we know when we talk about them needing Christ, they need Christ in so many ways, it is incredible for you to even try to imagine what it's like for them. And so we then cannot be flippant among each other, as well as for the non-believer. Oh yeah, yeah, I know all about Jesus dying on the cross for sin. That was a good thing. 
<laughs> it was a life-saving thing in every way. And so he is the cure. Jesus died on that cross to remedy the problem of sin so that we could be reconnected with God, reconnected to each other, and reconnected to ourselves. He then sent his Holy Spirit, sealing us with the Holy Spirit to the day of redemption, so that we could know that he is with us. So we could realize that he knows us completely. When we see that God himself is right here with us, the joy of the Lord will become our strength. Loneliness ends because we are known, not because people know us. And that's what we have to remember. It's not just that we know a lot of people. It's that we are well known. We are well known by God. We are well known by our Christian family. We are well known by those who truly love and care for us. And and that is what takes care of loneliness. That's how then we can go to bed alone at night and sleep well. Because we know that there are many who have our back. That the Lord is there with us. That our church family, that our Christian friends are there with us. I know I've shared this with you before. Sometimes it's always an amazing thing when, when you experience this. Uh, one time, we, uh, uh, the men did this. We had a breakfast once. This is way back in, uh, I think it was 2002 or 2003 when this happened. We were meeting down in the fellowship hall. We had breakfast, and then we were, we were going to end in prayer, but we were all standing in a circle around the, around the fellowship hall. And I forget how it started. I don't know who first asked the question, but we asked each one just to share very, very briefly what the church meant to them. And a few guys said, the, you know, the good things, but they're the things that you would expect to hear. And then one individual spoke, and I didn't know this about the individual. And this is what the person said. Well, this church is not just my family. It's my only family. I have a mom and dad, but they don't know the Lord. We don't really have anything in common. He didn't have a really good upbringing. He still sees them, but there's just not much there. He has no family, though they're all alive. That's why he said, the church is my family, paused, and then said, my real family, my only family. Because that's when when he was going to go through a time of crisis, though his parents were alive, that would not be who he would be calling. He'd be calling us. And you might be surprised that there may be some people here who may have family that's living, and yet... We're the real family. We're the only family. That's why it is so important that we truly love and care for each other, that we pray for each other, that we reach out to each other, and why we share the gospel with all those that we meet. Because there's a very large percentage of the population that is experiencing great and deep sadness every day in their life. And they experience that because they are experiencing deep and lasting loneliness. And what they might even be unaware of is every night they go to bed, even though they don't remember it, they keep waking up. They keep waking up. And maybe that's why over the past 10 years, they feel themselves becoming more and more tired and they can't figure out why. It's because they're not sleeping well. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace in our life. And Father, we are so grateful. Because even if we weren't aware of it, when we embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only was our sin forgiven, but Father, we were also given the ability to get a good night's sleep for the rest of our life. Even if we were unaware of it, the problems that we were having or the problems that we would have had with loneliness dissipated. Because in that moment, we were reconnected to God, reconnected to others, and reconnected to ourselves. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to allow that to sink deeply into our hearts and minds. May we think about it over and over again. Father, we may truly grasp and understand the great and the marvelous depth of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we be reminded of the power of the gospel to absolutely change the lives of those who need Christ. And may we then, without shame and with great boldness, share and explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are truly in desperate need. Father, we thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let me just share this with you before we sing. Some of you might be sitting here and you might be experiencing a great deal of that kind of loneliness that we talked about. Maybe a very deep-seated sadness. I want you to know that when we talk about the gospel, it's not a cliche. And if you have questions and you have doubts, there's nothing wrong with that. Myself, many of us here, be more than happy to take as much time as it needs, as we need, to answer your questions, to explain the gospel, to give you an opportunity to think about it, to pray about it, to pray with you, to pray for you, for you, to meet with you as often as you need to so that you can come to understand the marvelous gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what I can tell you is I know that my life is not perfect, but I would love for all of you to be able to possess what I possess. Because it's, it's, it's great. Ask my wife. I sleep really good at night. It's marvelous.